Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. What I'm going to do is first talk about how I think Judaism reacts to um, how it creates a future, in a sense, out of times of difficulty and a few speculations about our time and about, uh, and about what will happen um, from a Jewish perspective. And I say from a Jewish perspective because I think it's important to establish at the beginning something that all of you know, but I want to acknowledge that I know as well, which is I don't know anything more about this time than you do. I read the same papers. I watch the same news. Um, all of us uh, are equally both knowledgeable and ignorant about whatever the heck is going to happen um, over the next year as everybody else. Uh, so I, I do not come before you with any pretensions to greater uh, insight into the future than anyone. One of the things that I have been impressed by over the years of being a rabbi is to know how poor people are at predicting the future. Um, we forget when we listen to political pundits uh, talk with confidence about what's going to happen. We forget next week and the week after what they said um, and how smoothly they allied their uh, mistakes and just go on and make new predictions. Um, I remember before the Soviet Union collapsed, which you would think somebody would have had an inkling of almost no one thought that it was going to happen. Uh, the pandemic took almost everyone by surprise. I mean, people would say, yeah, there could be a pandemic, but nobody expected it next week. Uh, so everything we say about the future has to be ringed round with the caveats that uh, we're very bad at knowing what will happen. There are just too many contingencies that we do not foresee. Um, just give one more example. When I was a kid, we used to say, and I'm sure some of you too, we used to say maybe one day we'll travel around on jetpacks. But if you had told me when I was a child that one day you would carry all of human knowledge in your pocket, I would have said, well, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. And yet all of us do. Um, and so recognize really the depth of our ignorance. However, the fact that we don't know the future doesn't mean we don't shape the future. And this is something that our tradition insists upon, that in fact, not only do we shape the future, but in a curious way, we shape the past. What I mean by that is, we're coming on the season of tshuva. So if you commit a sin, and then you do tshuva, and you are obviously a different person than you were before that process. However different is not relevant for the moment, but you are obviously a different person. Then what you have done is you have made that sin different than if it had led to a different place. That is, every decision you make subsequently changes the previous decisions, so you actually do change the past, because you look back and you say, oh, that decision I made, it's, it's the thing that led me to here. So it's not the same if I'd made a different decision would have led me to there. And so we are constantly in the process of reshaping the future and the past. Um, let's take for a moment one or two catastrophes of Jewish history and talk about how Jews reacted to it. Obviously, 
the most commented on and the most important um, and, and one that has some relevance for right now was, of course, the destruction of the temple and what the rabbis had to decide to do, not just the rabbis, but the decision makers at the time, depends which temple we're talking about, had to decide to do in the wake of the destruction. And the fact that Judaism was a temple-centered religion is kind of hard for most of us to imagine now, but it was an entirely temple-centered religion. And all of a sudden, the temple was gone. And the decision to reinvent the tradition as a temple-centered, ideally, but not in reality, religion, um, is, uh, is summarized by lots of different uh, innovations, the most uh, familiar of which is the synagogue. There were places of worship outside the temple, but they were small and insignificant, and yet the synagogue became the locus of Jewish life because we didn't have a choice. It was either you have synagogues or you have nothing. Um, and various ritual innovations were permitted, like uh, uh, the blowing of the shofar outside the confines of Jerusalem, which is relevant to us these days, because otherwise you would be in perpetual mourning. Um, and so this ability to feel the loss and yet understand that every loss creates openings and possibilities is something that Judaism teaches us about a time such as now. Because when I look into the future post-pandemic, one thing I am certain of, which is that it will also provide certain blessings to the world that were unimaginable before the pandemic. And by this, I don't mean uh, the blessings only of cessation. Like you'll say, okay, well, so there was 10% less pollution in the air for all the time that people didn't drive. I'm also talking about the blessings of creativity. Um, what we're on now uh, for all of its uh, problems, and I think Zoom has a lot of problems. I even wrote an article um, with, a, with a corporate strategist at Microsoft named Kinney Zelesny, who, who I should confess now, so having already established how old I am, was once my Hebrew school student. Uh, and now she's head of corporate strategy at Microsoft. Thank you very much. Um, but we wrote an article together about how Zoom both humanizes and dehumanizes um, people. Uh, so there are, though, positives that are enabled by this, such as, for example, the reach of services that are on media far beyond um, what was possible before. And not only services, but the teaching. I would say rabbis have reached more people in the last six months than they did in the previous 10 years because everybody is online teaching classes. Everybody, everybody. And everybody is has podcasts and other casts and Instagram interviews and God knows what else. And that's part of the nature of the pandemic. And I don't think that it will stop once the pandemic stops because all of a sudden we realize how potent it is to be able to bring teachers with relatively little um, trouble into your world and into your life and into your room. And so the ability to 
um, recognize the blessings inherent in tragedy is part of the Jewish way. The other part of the Jewish way, which is really important to say, is that doesn't make you glad the tragedy happened. In other words, you can create something positive out of what has happened and still think what has happened is terrible. And those two things are important to keep in, in your hands at the same time. So if you had asked the rabbis, once they established synagogues and they prayer replaced sacrifice and so on, would you like the temple back? We know what the answer is, right? The answer is in all the prayers up to the, to the changes in the prayer book in the, 20, in the 20th, 21st century, we prayed for a restoration of the temple and Jews really, really wanted a restoration of the temple and many Jews still do. So it isn't that you were glad that this happened. It is that given that it happened, what is it that we do that makes this better? Um, the other piece of this that I think is worth um, highlighting is how much the pandemic has returned us to ourselves. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was, I send out, uh, it was first, for the first few months, I sent out a daily one minute video. Um, and now it's three times a week. Cause I thought, you know, it's, it's enough to have me in your inbox every day. Three times a week is plenty. Uh, I did not get a flood of complaints. Gee, it's, I'm so sorry that I don't see you every single day. Remarkably. Um, but at the beginning I said, it's really what you want to know is what kind of person do I want to be when this is over? And given that I'm now going to have many months to work on myself in various ways, and we all do, in ways that we didn't before, what kind of person do I want to be? Um, and, and I think that we have noticed a lot of things. Among those things, what do you miss and what do you not miss? Um, some are predictable and some are unpredictable. Uh, I have found, this will sound strange maybe to some of you, um, right before I got on this Zoom call, we were standing outside the synagogue and handing out packages, high holiday packages, okay? All the rabbis were there and people, we had a drive by and we were giving people like a mozzer and, you know, a honey stick and a Yisker candle and that kind of stuff. It was astonishing to me how wonderful it was to see people that I hadn't seen in months. Now, maybe you would have predicted it, but as you know, as... Uh, as the late and wonderful Rabbi David Lieber, who used to be the head of the AJU, once said to me, you can foreknow things, but you can't forefeel them. That is, you can't get the emotion before it happens. And it was just a wonderful thing to see all these people. And I realized that um, I want, that there's a big part of me that just wants to return to the normal engagement of actual human beings and human faces and that I missed it more than I would allow myself to feel. So part of it is what is it that you really miss and what is it that you don't miss? Uh, I will confess to you because I know that this is completely private and none of you would ever mention this to anyone else. I do not miss the Jewish dinners. I haven't been to a dinner at the Beverly Hilton now for six months and I got to tell you, it's a machaya, let me just tell you. And I don't mean to single out the Beverly Hilton. It's a good place. God bless it. But the big communal dinners, um, which 
it, I granted, if you go to a couple of them, they are fun and you get to see everybody, but, but which become part of a rabbi's regular routine. I had at least a couple of them a week to have gone six months without going to any of those functions. It's been joyous. Um, but I do think like, what do I want to, what do I want to fill my head with? What books do I want to read? What do I want to see? What do I want to think about? Because the world is going to come back and I'm going to look back on these months and there's, and they continue and think, what did I do with them to help me be the kind of person I want to be once they are over? And the, and here, the question that uh, Rabbi Schatz put at the, I, I think as the sort of Kotera, the headlines of the class was about prophecy and the future in a certain way. Um, how do we tell the future other than prophets? What I want to say about prophets is that we think of them as foretelling the future, but what they really did was see into the present. What they did was say, if you, Israel, keep behaving this way, this is what will happen to you. That is, they extrapolated from current trends. They saw deeply into the present. So if we see deeply into ourselves, if we continue to be this way, what will happen to us? If our family continues to do that, what will happen to it? What kind of Jewish community do we want to create when we come back? Um, what does it mean, for example, for the Jewish community that synagogue membership has dropped in this time? Why is it that people aren't coming back? Is it just because they can't be in their seats on high holidays, or is that part of a deeper malaise or difficulty in the community? In other words, what we will be in the future depends a lot on the diagnosis of the present. And that's what the rabbis, I believe, understood when they saw the community ahead of, in front of them and said, if we don't create alternate means for this community to thrive, synagogues, schools, um, then they're going to dissipate and we won't have a Jewish people anymore. Uh, that's the task that we have in front of us right now. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are a good, um, a good testing ground for that. Uh, my favorite uh, and most, most frequently, uh, I, at least on my own, when, when I talk about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is just to, to, to call people's attention to the sequence. Because really, Yom Kippur should come before Rosh Hashanah right? You should repent and start the new year. It's kind of weird that you start the new year, you're not a week into it, and all of a sudden you're repenting. You haven't even had time to sin. But the idea behind it is that Rosh Hashanah is a holiday of gratitude, of appreciation for the world. And only once you appreciate what the world is and what it contains, can you really appreciate what you've done to either maximize or mess it up. And so Yom Kippur is on the heels of our sense of here is the grand creation. And I think this year in particular, um, we will appreciate what creation means. And, and especially at this moment, which, you know, in California is like quasi-apocalyptic, um, where we see the fires and the pandemic and, and, and I'm sure outside your windows, I don't know if it's as true today as it was yesterday, there was this weird yellow cast to the entire, it looked like the world had jaundice, I swear. It's like a weird yellow cast to the entire world that tells us that we're not doing a very good job of stewardship of this, uh, of this planet that we, uh, that we are entrusted to keep. Um, 
So if we look carefully, deeply into where we are, then we will know where it is we need to go. Um, and I, I will just, I'll, I'll close this opening. Um, I don't know what the sequence is in the classes, how much we take questions or so on, but I'll, I'll close the opening with that, um, with that Hasidic story that just seems to fit so well here, and that is the, uh, the story um, of the guy who's lost in the forest. And he has no idea where he's going. He's totally lost. And he sits down under a tree, and he's despairing, and he hears a sound, he looks, and there's another guy, and he's thrilled, and he runs up to him, and he says, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're here. He goes, because I, I, I have no idea where I'm going. I'm totally lost. And the other guy says, well, I'm sorry to tell you that I'm lost, too. He says, but one thing I do know, the way that I have gone is not the way. So now take my hand, and we'll find the way together. So I think that one thing that the pandemic has taught us, um, and, and the the political divisions and anger have taught us and the wreckage to some of our natural world has taught us is that part of the way that we've gone is not the way. So now we have to find a new way together. Um, as I said, if we're having moderated questions or comments, I don't know, but I'm happy to take, I'm happy to have discussion. Great. Yeah. If, if people have questions, um, you can either chat them to me or you can raise your hand um, and I can call on you and Rabbi Wolfie can respond. About anything you want. It doesn't have to be about anything I talked about. I mean, anything I'm, I'm, you want. Seriously, anything you, you want. You can ask him if the exodus happened. That's right. You can. And I will tell you the answer. And I will tell you that I was on the Bema as a child because I had Good. read Torah that day for that sermon. And I remember it very well. Um, any... Any questions? No questions. Oh, Diane or Larry? So, Rabbi, we'll be up until yeah. the end. You talked about the pandemic almost in isolation. But the pandemic is taking place, as you mentioned at the end, in the midst of social, political, environmental um, challenges, um, more than challenges. Yeah. And I don't know, and I'm interested in what you think, whether to some extent our approach to these issues has been, has been exacerbated by the pandemic, what are the interactions between the two? But it does seem to me that your wonderful story at the end doesn't quite fit or play out because the two people who are meeting don't join hands. In fact, they're antagonists and one blames the other for all the problems how do you know one of the guys in the forest is a Republican and one is a Democrat? Maybe they're both. <laughs> ah, but even if even if they're both Democrats, why, one is a Democrat <laughs> and one is a far left. Or if it's Republicans, one is a never-Trumper. Whatever they are, yeah. they're not joining hands. They're not seeing the same problems. Um, I, I'm not trying to make a political point. I actually want to ask you, what do you think the interaction is? And is it possible that the pandemic and all the thinking that we're doing about it that you mentioned, yeah. somehow help us to overcome these other problems. So I, I, I know I think, it's a, I think it's a fantastic question, an incredibly important one. Uh, and, and what I would, and, and I give this an enormous amount of thought, um, really an enormous amount of thought. And the reason that I do is that as some of you may know, I have a politically very divided congregation. Um, and, uh, and I have literally had people from both left and right tell me they want to leave the synagogue because it's either too right or too left, both. Um, so, I mean, like, 
really divided. And, and what I have discovered, and, and your question uh, implies this, and I don't think this will, I don't think this will come as, as a bolt of revelation to any of you, but, but if you haven't felt it in your kishkas, then maybe you don't know how much this is true, is that this is not actually a disagreement about political views. This is two entirely different orientations to the way people look at the world. Um, if you watch, for example, an hour of Fox News and an hour of MSNBC, then you get a tiny taste of this, but not as much as, as actually exists. Um, because what you see is, first of all, they're covering completely different things. And if they cover the same thing, they cover it in a way that, that a neutral third party would think they're not talking about the same thing. And so you're absolutely right. It is extraordinarily difficult to figure out how to split. Um, and the pandemic makes it much worse. And the reason I think that's so is, and then I will tell you, by the way, my prescription for America. I have, I have a solution to all this. Nobody will do it, but I have the solution. Um, but first, let me tell you why the pandemic makes it worse, and then I'll give you the solution. The pandemic makes it worse because there is no longer interaction outside of the political sphere. You don't run into it, people at the market and say, how are your kids? No, everything happens online, and online we know there is, you know, politics sucks up. The more, I, I'm almost tempted to say, the more politics is part of your life, the worse your life is. Because the things of life are actually not politics. And if they become politics, then that means something has gone wrong. Because my life shouldn't be about what somebody in Sacramento or in Washington decides. My life should be about what I decide and the people around me decide. Um, here's the solution uh, to, um, to the problem. And, and you're welcome, to, uh, you're welcome to, uh, to market this. I think every, everyone on the left has to invite a family on the right. And everyone on the right has to invite a family on the left for dinner in which the only discussion will be politics. But... The family on the left is only allowed to express opinions on the right as persuasively as they can. And the family on the right is only allowed to express opinions on the left as persuasively as they can. In other words, it is a forced, assume the other person's position so you understand who they are. And you can't do that unless you have to articulate it. And for my money, I really do wish that that would help. I, someone said, done that, and they almost killed each other. Well, it won't work in every case. But, um, but I, I really think that that's, that necessary assumption of the other person's point of view is crucial if we're going to begin to understand how differently we think about such things. Um, because it's uh, – and, and, by the way, the Jewish community suffers from this, I think, uh, as – as seriously as any community. Um, and, and the other, the one other, uh, the one other thing that I would, I would tell you to keep in mind, um, is things change. They really change. And just because we can't see a way out of the polarization now, doesn't mean that it won't happen because things that were huge issues a while ago stopped being issues. Um, and, 
Don't forget, in the 60s, people were literally, you know, at each other's throats in the streets in ways that are almost unimaginable now, almost. Um, and yet, then you had the 70s and the 80s, which the 60s it left a legacy, but it was different. So um, you never know. Things may get much better, but I really do think that, that uh, the necessity of seeing the other person's view is is crucial and, and uh, unfortunately underdone. We have a few questions in the chat. So I will, do you want me to read both and you can answer them or do you want me to read them one? Sure, go ahead. Okay, so the first one is from Bob and he said, are we on the cusp of adopting new obligations and rituals in modern life regarding protecting nature? Um, what are the, oh, he said that he's aware of work by Chazon and Arava uh, but I do not think most Jews, if asked, what are the top 10 obligations of a Jew, would mention protecting the integrity of nature. Right. And then a second question, um, which is a little bit of a different question, but you can choose to answer them together. Okay. But, um, it's from Audrey. And she said, yesterday I attended an event with Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He was talking about the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism, he said, right. is passive and hope requires action. Do you, Rabbi Wolpe, agree? And how can we remain hopeful and act on that in a time when ethical and moral issues are being uh, politicized? What do we do to remain hopeful and affect change? So, yeah, I mean, I, I like that distinction. I've heard that distinction before, and I think that it's a, it's, it's a useful one. Um, uh, so let's start with the environment and then go to hope. Uh, I would say, I, I would start off by, by saying this about the problem with the commands of the environment. We have a problem creating new commands because we have a problem acknowledging the old ones. And once you have said that the old ones are not binding, it's really difficult to say, but the new ones are. Um, so to use the religious language uh, um, of command about the environment to people who don't accept the religious language of command about other things is going to be a hard sell. And the great challenge, and this is a whole different, this is a different class and a different discussion, but here is the great challenge of non-literalist Judaism, um, by which I mean everything apart from the far right of Judaism. The great challenge is for most of Jewish history, people kept commands because God told them to. Maybe they were good, maybe they were bad, maybe they were helpful, maybe they weren't. But the fundamental bedrock reason why you did what you did was because God told you to do it. As soon as that is not the reason, then what you have to do is persuade people it's good for them. Shabbat is good for you because it creates family time, or it does this, or it does that. And it is much harder to persuade people to do things because it's good for them than to persuade them to do it because the creator of the universe told them they had to. So you, when you say a command about the environment, what you're basically saying is we have to do this because it's good for us or necessary for us. That everybody who agrees with you will agree with you. The question is, how do you persuade the people who don't agree with you? In the same way, how do you persuade the people who don't agree with you that it's good to, to keep kosher, not to keep kosher? Um, and, and so I'm leery of the willingness of non-literalist Jews to feel commanded. They may feel obligated by self-interest or communal interest, but that's not the same thing as feeling commanded. Um, 
that is a problem. And it's a problem that we're not going to solve on this call, but it is a problem that all, uh, all modern Jews, I think, are aware of or must acknowledge. In terms of hopefulness, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful, a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, I walk out onto the street, and here's what I see. I see, first of all, buildings and street lamps. Do you realize the degree of human cooperation and human ingenuity and planning that is required to make a building or a street lamp or a street or a city? I mean, we have such a negative bias that we focus on the divisions, but the truth is, for the most part, our world works, and it works because of an unbelievable amount of human cooperation and planning and expertise and thought. I mean, look, I don't know if there'll be a vaccine tomorrow or five years from now or never, but I do know that many of the best minds in the world are working to create a vaccine, and that's an incredible human endeavor and accomplishment. And so I see lots and lots and lots of reasons to be hopeful. We're talking to each other, and you could be, for all I know, you could be in the Congo, and I could be talking to you on Zoom, um, because the world is wired. And 20 years ago, such a thing was inconceivable and didn't exist. Now that we have it, of course, we take it for granted, and we say, but what about that other thing? It's the, it's the black dot syndrome about the teacher who stands in front of his class and shows a white wall and puts a black dot on it. And he says, um, what do you see? And they all say, you see a black dot. And he says, no, you don't. You see a huge white wall in which there's a tiny black dot. He says, but remember, you focus on the black dot. So there is a giant negative bias, not only to our uh, approach, but also to the way the world works. I mean, it is true that if you get a thousand people who drive well on the 405, traffic goes fine. You get one person who drives badly and you get a two hour tie up. Um, so there is a negative bias also to the function of the world. But we sh there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Most of the people you meet, I think, are, are well-intentioned and want good things. Um, let me give you a, a, let me suggest a book to you. I have a lot of reservations about this book, and, and I'm not telling you that this is like the best thing since sliced bread. But there's a book by a man named Rutger Bregman called Humankind. And it, it, he's, a, he's a Norwegian philosopher. And his basic, the basic approach of the book is people are good. Um, and he goes through the Milgram experiment and the Zimbardo experiments and other things, and he rereads them and he shows that they do not say what they are commonly assumed to say. You'll have to read the book for the details. But I just want to tell you one thing about the book that he talks about at the beginning. The, you know, he says every high school class reads Lord of the Flies. And we all think that if you put a bunch of kids on an island, they're going to kill each other. He said that there actually was a literal Lord of the Flies event. There were kids who were trapped on an island for several years and then were found. And guess what? They all cooperated. They took care of each other. They fed each other. When one of them got sick, the others took care of him. He said they didn't operate at all like William Goldman's book said that they were supposed to. And, and when I look at the world, I really, when I wake up in the morning and say, Ani, I really, I'm, I look around. I'm in, I'm in a house I didn't build, right, with books I didn't write. With, uh, with all sorts of, of, uh, uh, of amenities that I could never have created. 
And then I say, ah, it's got a terrible world. Um, it's just not true. And even some unexpected things. Okay, like let me, let me just say one thing about without getting at all political. At all, I really don't intend to get into social dislocation, race relations, black and white. I'm not getting at all political. But do you know an article I read yesterday? Do you know, do you know the most successful in terms of income and in terms of education immigrant group in America? Nigerians. Nigerians. And so there are like signs of hope all around us. I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful. Um, it's just that it's so much more fashionable to be despairing. And there are reasons to despair. I don't want to minimize it, but, but there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. As long as, by the way, we don't destroy the planet, which would be a problem. That would be, I grant you, if you destroy the planet, you got a problem. Um, but if we don't destroy the planet, I think we'll be okay. Or if Elon Musk gets us to another planet <laughs> in time. One of the two. I'm up for either That's one. Good way of bringing those two questions together. That was great. Um, someone asked a question about, do you have any advice on how to survive, was the word used, um, the new generation? Specifically talking about parents with teenagers, um, but dealing, my guess is in reading into this question, um, dealing with the new generation, potentially having different goals and different uh, ideas of how to be in the world and how as the parents or teachers or family of the new generation to quote unquote survive? Um, I suggest you do it the exact same way people do it in every generation, which is tell them they're wrong and mistaken and have them ignore you and do what they intend to do. That's my, that's my advice. Um, it worked for us. I think it'll work for them. Um, look, you cannot... You cannot transplant experience. You can't. Everybody has to make their own mistakes and live their own life. Um, and so just think about when you were young. And so you tell them, you give them the best advice that you can. And there is the one thing that is different, that is different. I, I, and I think that, that we have to be aware of this, although I'm not sure that you can do anything about it, is unfortunately, to, to my great sorrow, and I really mean this, so many of the mistakes of youth now are immortalized online. And that's a problem because I don't know about you, but I can think of things I did when I was a kid that I'm really glad are not on Facebook. And I would be embarrassed if they were on Facebook. Um, so the fact that that's so suggests that you're supposed to be wiser, younger than anybody can be. The, the, ups, the possible upside of that is maybe, maybe we'll get a more forgiving society when everybody has a past that you can find online. <laughs> that would be a good thing. Um, but, but that worries me. But you know what? I, mistakes are part of being a person and, and, and doing stupid stuff is how you grow. Uh, and, and if you don't do it, um, I, I can't imagine how you could look back and, and feel like you've lived. So I, I don't know how to accommodate people other than to just assume that, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's from time immemorial, it has been a problem. Um, and it always will be. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why, uh, why you hope your children live long enough to be parents. Because then they go, oh, I see. It wasn't so easy. It wasn't so easy. And one of the things that I always tell children, 
um, about parenting is that one thing that you have to understand is um, how, when you live long enough, um, you realize that you didn't know which way things would turn out. And you look back and guesses that seemed obvious at the time turn out in retrospect to be, how could you think that? Um, but, but that's, you know, people have to get a little bit older to understand it. Uh, the reverse of that, by the way, which is also really important, and, and I, I try to say to older people, is that's one of the reasons why you have to take the pain of youth seriously. You know, when someone like breaks, has their first breakup and adults all think it's cute, it's not cute because when you're young and you have pain, you have never outlived pain and you don't know what it is to outlive pain. So um, George Eliot said this, the novelist, she wrote, childhood is soothed by no memories of outlived sorrow. So in some ways, the pains that we feel when we are children, they're the worst. Because if something bad happens to me now, I know um, that, that, that that will pass. But, but you don't know that when you're young. The, the book is called Humankind, someone asked, and it's Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N, Humankind, um, just like it's spelled. She appreciated the answer, so thank you for the answer. Um, Ziggy asked... In this time before the high holidays, when we're talking about tshuva, and with all of this great learning that helps us think about things right or wrong, how do we get the younger generation to at least come to hear Torah at the shul or get on a Zoom to learn Torah? Um, I'm not, well, I would say the first and best way to do that um, is to have their contemporaries be the ones that are teaching Torah and getting them to be interested. Uh, in other words, one of, the, one of the arrogances of age is to assume that older people know what younger people want. And the truth is, you know, I for years ran Friday Night Live and then I started to realize I was 10, 15 years older than the people we were intending to attract. I it wasn't... I wasn't the right person anymore. Um, and so if you want to know how to get young people to listen to Torah, the best thing to do is to ask young people, what is it that would get you to be interested in this? Or what is it that you would be interested in? Um, because I, I, I don't know. And also they live the, the life of a 15, 17, 20-year-old, 25-year-old is significantly different from what my life was at those ages, significantly different. Um, I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have Twitter. I didn't have dating apps. I didn't have, you know, Snapchat. I didn't have TikTok, on and on and on and on. All those things that they live on and influence them, they didn't exist. So you have to find out, like, what way could you leverage those in their own minds to, to get the kinds of lessons they want as opposed to the kinds of lessons I think they should have. That would be my prescription. I'll just, I'll just add to that as someone Please. who's working with younger people a lot, um, that I, I think that what Rabbi Wolpe said is exactly correct. And, um, and one of the things that I think we are seeing so much from young people, specifically during this pandemic, 
is that their entire lives are on Zoom and it's exhausting. And so finding ways that the learning, Rabbi Wolfie started off by talking about how his congregation has these bags going out to their communities. I have volunteers in our gym right now doing the exact same thing to be giving them out at 1.30. So I think allowing that learning to somehow end up in their homes or in their pockets or somehow in a social gathering when that's allowed, that's the way to get them towards it because having it be something that is just like everything else it's just going to feel like another exhaustion and another something. And so finding the way to make it relevant, but also different, at least for me, has been the way to get younger people to feel like it's something they're now supposed to be interested in or, or, um, or at least intrigued by. Any other questions? If not, I have one. Uh, sure. <laughs> Okay, my big question is, um, what are you talking about on the high holidays? Uh, and the reason I ask that is, number one, because you are a wonderful, wonderful orator, and so I'm interested Thank in you. knowing what it is that you are going to say. And also because I will speak for myself in saying that this seems like a year that is harder to pinpoint just one thing to talk about. Um, yeah. and to not make it the same thing that we as rabbis have been talking about for six months. And so I'm interested to hear your, your take and your angle for these high holidays. Um, so uh, I'm going to be talking, I mean, I will be talking obviously about what we went through this year um, and uh, from, different, from different angles. And um, I will talk somewhat about uh, probably... Um, the way in which uh, the Jewish community um, has to has to react to it. I don't want to exactly tell tell you everything that I will say because I don't. I, I just have ideas, but I haven't uh, completely fleshed them out. Um, and uh, I want to also talk about the the qualities. I think the qualities of character that we need um, to come through this. Uh, and then I want to talk about the challenges that we faced in our history um, so that we are aware of the fact that this is, you know, this is not a unique phenomenon in Jewish history. And, um, and as our ancestors were tested by the way they came through this and what they left us, so will we be. Um, and more than that, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I have notes on the computer in front of me, but, uh, but I don't know exactly how they're going to come together, uh, in part because um, I'm, I'm one of those people. First of all, I, I can't write sermons out. I have to speak from a couple notes. Um, I just, or I have an outline in my head. I just can't do it um, because what happens is things occur to me during the time and then I'm not happy with what I wrote out. So I long ago gave up doing that. But the other part of it is I need... <laughs> This sounds weird. I need the pressure of the big game. That is, I need to know, okay, you, you're gonna, you have to talk tomorrow. What do you really want to say today? I've never understood, I envy, but I've never understood those rabbis who prepare their sermons a month or two before, because I always think, well, how do you know that that day you're going to want to say that? Right. Um, you might not. So, so I don't know how it will come out and, and, it may be different from, and the, the last thing, of course, is 
we live in such a fluid world. God only knows what could happen, you know, <laughs> between now and Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Um, but the one thing that I am not going to talk about is, as far as I can, is politics. Um, but I will tell you what the sermon I gave right before the last election, which is my only advice in politics. In 2016, before the election, I said to uh, my congregation, I told them about John Rawls, who wrote the most read book of political philosophy probably in the 20th century. Um, and, uh, and Rawls's book was, uh, was based on his idea called the original position. Uh, Rawls is R-A-W-L-S. Rawls's idea of the original position was this. You're about to be born into a society. You don't know who you'll be. You could be rich, you could be poor, you could be black, you could be white, you could be a Mexican immigrant, you could be a daughter of the American Revolution, you could be an inner city kid, you could be a farmer, you have no idea who you'll be, okay? What kind of society do you want if you don't know who you will be in that society? In other words, you're not a West Side Jew. You know what kind of society you want if you're a West Side Jew. But what kind of society do you want if you don't know what you're going to get dropped into? Then I said, vote for the candidate who you think will create the kind of society that you would want to live in if you did not know who you would be. And that's my advice this year, too. I'm not going to tell you who that is. I'm just going to tell you that I think that's the way to vote. Vote in order to create a society that you would want to live in if you were genetically, randomly dropped into it. And then good luck. Um, but I'm going to try to avoid because it's so, first of all, it's so close and it's so bitterly divided. Uh, I'm going to try very hard um, to uh, avoid anything that is, you know, politically explosive. So. Thank you. Yeah. I agree with you with the big game thing. I also cannot write weeks in advance. And, uh, so hopefully something, you know, something, something gels, right. Pops up. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. Yes. How do you deal with waiting for change to occur and how do you stay positive during that process? Uh, patience is hard. I'm not, a, I, I'm not by nature a patient person. Um, I'm the kind of person who responds to emails right away because I can't organize them. People think I'm responsive. The truth is I'm just disorganized. I, I don't know how to put them into files and folders, so I better answer them. So there, I can't stand to see lots of emails in my inbox. So I just answer, 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 um, which is not really efficient and thoughtful. It's just gets it done, um, which shows you that I have a certain impatience streak. Uh, no question about it. Um, but, uh, but I would say that, that remembering that patience matters is helpful and also recognizing that um, the one thing that I try to remember, and this is, this is hard for me, is sometimes people will say something or they'll write me something and I want to respond right away. And I will try to remember how often I have discovered that if I wait, my not just my response changes, but my emotions about the response change. You know, the old thing about counting to 10 before your answer, it's really true. It is really true. And so time does change things. And I tell people this all the time when they're in grief. You know, I say, 
it, it feels now like a betrayal to feel like you'll ever feel better. I understand that. But that's how people are built. And it's essential that we be built that way or nobody would ever function, right? The most important word I always tell in, in the 23rd Psalm, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I remember learning that years ago. I don't even remember which teacher said it, but the most important word in that Psalm is walk. You don't stay in the valley of the shadow of death. You walk so that eventually you come into the sunlight. But that takes patience. So I think patience is essential to live a good life. Uh, but like all good things, it's hard and takes work. And sometimes you have to bite your lip or bite your tongue um, or not answer. And, and just remember that you'll have the chance to answer tomorrow. Or if you don't, it probably wasn't so important anyway. Well... Would you would you like the final word before I close? I would sure. happy to give it to you. Okay. Um, I, my my final word is just uh, that, you know, I I uh, I really do. I would say this: I have a, an enormous amount of faith in the resilience of the Jewish people and the Jewish tradition, and of America for that matter. That doesn't mean that we will be the same. It doesn't mean we'll be the same. Um, it may be that those of us who are used to a certain kind of Jewish community and even a certain kind of country will have to resign ourselves to the fact that that was our community and our country, but it won't be theirs. And, and, every, and it is the responsibility of every generation to give way to the generation after it. And you can do it, you can do it reluctantly or you can do it with grace, but you will do it. So may as well do it with grace. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.